Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 35, Deuteronomy chapters 25 and 26. Well, last week, we ended our discussion of Deuteronomy chapter 25 with some laws that revolve around God's principle of fundamental fairness among one another. And those laws were given in the context, very odd one, of a wife um, in a fight uh, that her husband was having with another man. Right? And in order to help him, she grabbed the private parts of her husband's opponent. Now this rolled on into a law about not having two different sets of weights and measures used with the obvious intent to cheat people. Immediately following those two laws are the law we will begin with today. The law of Deuteronomy 25.17. This law tells Israel to always remember that their arch enemy is the Amalekites. And that when the time is right, Israel is to wipe out that wicked nation. Let's reread a small section of Deuteronomy chapter 25 that talks about this admonition. Uh, If you have a complete Jewish Bible, uh, turn to page 225. Deuteronomy chapter 25, we're going to start reading at 17. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Very short. Remember what Amalek did to you on the road as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you by the road, attacked those in the rear, those who were exhausted, straggling behind when you were tired and weary. He did not fear God. Therefore, when Adonai your God has given you rest from all of your surrounding enemies, and the land Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance to possess, then you are to blot out all memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. Who are the Amalekites that Yehovah wants Israel to never forget, to eventually destroy? Well, if it weren't for the Lord choosing to put them front and center as the archetypal enemy of Israel, they were actually a rather unremarkable people about which very little is known. Genesis tells us that there was a person named Amalek who was a grandson of Esau. Now Esau, of course, was the patriarch Jacob's twin brother. Now he was sired then by Esau's son, Eliphaz. Therefore, Amalek was related to Israel. They were Semites. But because he wasn't a Hebrew, that automatically means that Amalek and the Amalekites were Gentiles. Nevertheless, the people that Amalek spawned and grew into a nation that was especially wicked in God's eyes represent in the Bible a type, a pattern, probably even the epitome of an enemy of Israel. Now notice in these verses 
that God says that Israel is never to forget what Amalek did to them. That Amalek attacked Israel as they were struggling to escape the grip of the Pharaoh and journey to the promised land. Now, Amalek didn't seem to have any rational reason to hate and attack Israel. As Israel had done nothing to them that's well recorded in the Bible or any other known historical narrative. Amalek hated them, so far as we know, simply because they existed. They behaved as a coward. Amalek behaved without honor, as their method was to attack the rear of the miles-long column of Israelites, where the weak and the elderly struggled to, to keep up. In other words, what they did was fundamentally unfair. And you'll recall, fundamental fairness was the issue for the previous couple of verses of this chapter. So it just rolls right along. Now it would be a long time before God would finally direct Israel to bring about the annihilation of the nation of Amalek. It was King Saul, about 250 years or so, after the time of Moses, who was given the direct order by God to attack Amalek and begin the process of ridding the world of them. Now let's take the time tonight to read the story of King Shaul and his battle against Amalek. Because it's going to tie together a couple of important principles that we have discussed in the past. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. That's page 313 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 313 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 15. We are going to read this entire chapter. Fascinating story. Shmuel said to Shaul, Adonai sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now listen to what Adonai has to say. Here is what Adonai Savot says. I remember what Amalek did to Israel. How they fought against Israel when they were coming up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek. Completely destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. Kill men, women, children, babies, cows, sheep, camels, donkeys. Saul summoned the people, reviewed them at Talaim. 200,000 foot soldiers with another 10,000 men from Judah. Saul arrived at the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Canaanites, go away, withdraw. Leave your homes there with the Amalekites. Otherwise, I might destroy you along with them, even though you were kind to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites went away from among the people of the Amalekites. And then Shaul attacked Amalek, starting with Havilah and continuing towards Shur at the border of Egypt. He took Agog, the king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed the people, putting them to the sword. However, 
Shaul and the people spared Agag along with the best of the sheep and the cattle, even the second best, also the lambs, everything that was good. They weren't inclined to destroy those things. But everything that was worthless, everything that was weak, they completely destroyed. Then the word of Adonai came to Samuel and he said, I regret setting up Saul as king because he has turned his back from following me. He hasn't obeyed my orders. This made Samuel very sad, so he cried to Adonai all night. Samuel got up early in the morning to meet Saul. However, Samuel was told Saul came to Carmel to set up a monument for himself there. But now he's left. He's on his way down to Gilgal. Shmuel went to Shaul, and Shaul said to him, May Adonai bless you. I have done what Adonai ordered. Samuel answered, Well, if so, why do I hear sheep bleeding and cows mooing? Saul said, Well, they brought them from the Amalekites because the people spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to to sacrifice to Adonai, your God. But we completely destroyed the rest. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I'm going to tell you what Adonai said to me last night. He said, Speak. And Samuel then said, You may be small in your own sight, but you're the head of the tribes of Israel. Adonai anointed you king over Israel. Now Adonai sent you on a mission, and he told you, go and completely destroy Amalek, those sinners. Keep making war on them till they've been exterminated. Why did you seize the spoil instead of paying attention to what Adonai said? From Adonai's, Adonai's viewpoint, you've done an evil thing. Saul said to Samuel, I did too pay attention to what Adonai said. I carried out the mission on which Adonai sent me. I brought back Hagog, the king of Amalek. I completely destroyed Amalek. But the people, they took some of the spoil, the best of the sheep. Cattle set aside for destruction to sacrifice to Adonai, your God. In Gilgal, Samuel said, Does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice and heeding orders than the fat of rams. For rebellions like the sin of sorcery, stubbornness like the sin, like the crime of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of Adonai, he too has rejected you as king. Saul said to Samuel, I've, I've sinned, I've sinned. I violated the order of Adonai and your words too because I, I was afraid of the people. I listened to what they said. Now, please, pardon my sin. Come back with me so that I can worship Adonai. But Samuel said to Saul, I'll not go back with you because you have rejected the word of Adonai. Adonai has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel was turning to leave, he took hold of the hem of his garment and it tore. And Samuel said to him, You know, Adonai has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today. He's given it to a fellow countryman of yours who's better than you. Moreover, the Eternal One of Israel will not lie. He will not change his mind because he's not a mere human being subject to changing his mind. And then Saul said, I have sinned. But in spite of that, please 
Please show me respect now before the leaders of the people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I can worship Adonai, your God. So Samuel followed Saul back and Saul worshipped Adonai. And then Samuel said, bring Agog, the king of Amalek, here to me. And Agog came to him in chains and said, without doubt, without doubt mine will be a bitter death. And Samuel said, just as your sword has left women childless, so will your mother be left childless among women. Then Samuel cut Agog into pieces before Adonai and Gilgal. Samuel returned to Ramah. Saul went up to his house in Givat Shaul. Never again did Samuel see Saul till the day he died. But Samuel grieved over Saul. Adonai regretted that he'd ever made Saul king over Israel. In a nutshell, God orders King Saul to kill everyone and everything associated with Amalek. Saul immediately summons several thousand troops. They set up an ambush. They largely succeed in their efforts. But before Israel attacks, they have a parley with with some people identified as the Kenites. And they warn them to leave the area, otherwise they're going to become collateral damage. And as was customary in battles of this era, the king of Amalek, Agog, was captured by Saul and his life was spared. Now the healthy animals that belonged to the Amalekites were taken as spoils of war by the Israelites. This act angered God to such a degree that he openly stated how much he had regretted making Saul king over Israel. Now, the the prophet and former judge, Samuel, Shmuel in Hebrew, intervened. He told Saul that he had disobeyed God. He would now pay the price of losing the legitimacy of his throne for his action. Saul argued back that Samuel was mistaken, that he had done what Jehovah had asked him to do to annihilate the Amalekites. But in the end, he admits he has sinned against God, even though in his mind this was more a technicality than anything significant. Well, Samuel orders the king of Gog be brought to him, whereupon he executes a Gog, he cuts him up into pieces. Now this would be the last time that Samuel ever saw ever saw Saul, the man he had earlier personally anointed to be the first king of Israel. In verse 23 of this chapter, the Lord compares the sin of King Saul with the sins of sorcery and idolatry and says that because Saul has done this this evil, that God now rejects Saul. It's important to remember that of the few sins and crimes that automatically call for the death sentence, meaning there is no means of atonement provided for in the law of Moses for those sins, two of those sins are sorcery and idolatry. God is through with King Saul. And he's now going to separate himself from him. That is the ultimate death sentence. Here's the thing. 
What exactly did Saul do that was so egregious that he deserved such a harsh judgment? Essentially, the reason for Jehovah's severity is all wrapped up in the answer to this question. Who was it that ordered the war against Amalek? Answer, Jehovah, God. Therefore, this constitutes formal, God-ordained, holy war. Only the divine can order holy war. Men who engage in battle in the name of God, like the Crusades, are not engaged in holy war, despite their claims that that's what it is. When we fight a war that God has not directly and unequivocally ordered, it may well be the necessary and right thing to do. God may even be on our side, so to speak. But that's not the definition of holy war. There have been no holy wars since the close of the scriptures, at least so far as we know. There will be no holy wars until Messiah returns to lead the next holy war that we typically dub the Battle of Armageddon. That the Lord has aided Israel at times in their several wars since returning to the Holy Land doesn't necessarily mean that Israel was fighting a holy war. Our current fight to defend ourselves against Islam, just as Israel's fight to defend their nation while completely justified, is not true holy war. I hope you can see this, accept it, see the difference. In holy war, the law of harem comes into play, the law of the ban, whereby the spoils of war belong exclusively to the Lord, not to the men who participated in the battle. Since God is spirit, he has neither need of neither the captured cattle or human slaves or gold and silver, or he doesn't have any need for the cities of the enemy. Therefore, according to the rules of holy war that we studied in depth some time ago, all the spoils of holy war are to be handed over to God unless he specifies otherwise. There are some exceptions on a case-by-case basis. These spoils are by their very nature, the spoils of holy war, God's holy property. Now, under normal circumstances, such as the offering of regular Levitical sacrifices, the items designated as God's holy property are turned over to the priesthood for disposition. And most of the stuff, the grains and the fruit and the wine, the meat, it's divided up among the priests and and the Levite laborers as their God-authorized means of, of personal support. Substantially smaller portion of in other words, of plants and animals, are burned up on the brazen altars compared to what the priests and the the Levites get. But in holy war, 
the items are generally not turned over to the priests for their distribution and personal use. Rather, the spoils of holy war are to be destroyed. They're to be burned up. They're to be returned to their elements as a symbolic way of giving it back to God. Now, this also, as difficult as it is to take, goes for the captured people. God ordains what's to be done with them. In some cases, the men are to be executed and the women and children spared and added to Israel as servants. And invariably, after a few generations, they become assimilated and so they're citizens. At other times, as with Amalek, all the people are to be executed. Men, women, children, infants. Now, King Saul, being the weak and selfish king that he was, he paid no attention to the holy war laws, to the laws of harem. He decided he'd do things a little bit God's way, a little bit his way. So while he did follow God's attack to attack, God's command to attack Amalek, and it appears that as of this time, Amalek, by the way, was not a particularly threatening problem to Israel, and Saul did execute all the people, he did not kill the king of Amalek. And in addition, he took for himself and allowed some of the Israelites to take for themselves some of the spoils of war. This was a direct affront upon God's holiness, as King Saul and those Israelites had helped themselves to God's holy property. See, the affront was so serious that God's prophet Samuel completely and permanently separated himself from King Saul from that day forward. This was a completely this was completely appropriate for what use is there for a prophet of God to give God's word to a man who's now separated, correct, cut off from God. There's not much point, is there? Before we get back to Deuteronomy, I want to mention a couple of other things. Often in the Bible we'll see statements that use the word all. A-L-L, all. Or we'll see statements that seem to indicate finality or full inclusion or full Exclusion, for that matter. Almost all of those times are very general statements. It would be like our getting bilked in some financial scheme and lamenting that we have lost all of our money. While we may be terribly damaged and indeed our wealth greatly diminished, we've probably not lost 100% of our money never again to have any money. So in the story of the Amalekites where it says that Saul completely destroyed all the people of Amalek, that doesn't in any way mean that every last Amalekite was killed. In fact, it next fell to King David to again deal with the Amalekites. 
And he destroyed them until there was almost nothing left. And then centuries later, King Hezekiah would order 500 men from the tribe of Simeon to go to Mount Seir in the territory of Edom to finally and permanently eradicate the remnant of Amalek. Now the reason I went to all this length to talk about Amalek is because of what I told you at the outset. Amalek was certainly real. The stories about them, true. But they also represent a type and a pattern. And the type Amalek represents doesn't only pertain to the biblical times of the past. When we dust off the history books and, and look closer, we see that Amalek is also symbolic of the spirit of the Antichrist and of Satan. Okay. Satan, the great evil one, the ultimate enemy of Israel and of mankind and of God. If you want to understand God's attitude towards Satan and what our attitude ought to be towards Satan and his followers, then just study the stories of Amalek in the Bible. God is in the process of total eradication of Satan and his followers and everything Satan possesses. And he's going to do it in the pattern of his genocide upon Amalek. Now let's recall something we discussed a few weeks ago. There is this notion, a false notion, among the modern church that Jesus has revised the face and character of God. Away from this Old Testament God who will judge and destroy his enemies to the New Testament God who winks at sin and wouldn't harm a fly. So great is his mercy, so much does he love everyone and everything. The concept is that Jehovah has forsaken his attributes of wrath and justice and he's now 100% all forgetting, all forgiving love. He is the ultimate pacifist deity who exists only for our benefit. His motto is, no harm, no foul. And one of the primary sayings of Yeshua that's used to defend this modern position is that we're to love our enemies and not to hate them. Now I accept this instruction completely, but understand there is a night and day difference between loving our enemies and our loving God's enemies. Just as there exists justifiable and rational human war versus God-ordained holy war, so there is not necessarily a connection between our own personal enemies, people who maybe harmed us or offended us as our neighbors, versus those who God has declared as his eternal enemies, such as Amalek. We indeed are to love and not hate that person 
who has perhaps defrauded us or slandered us, maybe even tried to kill us. Christians or not. But we're not to love and accept those whom God has explicitly identified as marked for destruction. Because they are His eternal enemies who oppose His kingdom. Amalek was one of God's enemies. Satan and his followers are another. Notice how the instruction concerning Amalek in Deuteronomy 25.17 is to at all times remember what Amalek did to Israel and how God hates them. Hate meaning rejects them. And how his plan is to use Israel as his divine instrument of final destruction on Amalek. The modern day believers of the God of Israel are equally to remember Amalek. All of us. We're to remember the nation of Amalek, the people of Satan, and we're to be prepared for holy war against them. That holy war, I think, is not far off. And we better be well into our preparation for it. It'll begin the day that God sends Messiah Yeshua back to be the divine warrior leader against Satan and all of his followers. But while long ago the preparation for Israel was spears and bows and swords, for us, it is trust in Yeshua as our Savior and in the Word of God as God's will for men. That's what it is for us. Notice also that while Israel was to be as separate as possible from Amalek and was to have nothing to do with Amalek and was to defend themselves at all times from Amalek, that a holy war against Amalek was not to be attempted just any time Israel was feeling its oats. If Israel suddenly had some religious fervor grip them, the leaders got together and decided that now they were strong enough to attack Amalek. That was not holy war. Let's move on to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Now before, let's, before we get into reading it, I'd like to introduce this chapter by saying that it begins a four-chapter section that revolves around the blessings and the curses contained in the Law of Moses. Now, we entered chapter 25 where the subject was essentially fundamental fairness. And in this four-chapter section of Deuteronomy that begins with chapter 26, the subject of true religion is going to be briefly summarized and then some examples are going to be given to us. And at the end of the section, the often forgotten admonition of God that this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. That is spoken. And we should all etch that divine statement in our memories because too often 
the incorrect reason given for the giving of the new covenant is that the law was just too hard to be followed. That is not why it was given. There is also a warning for future disasters for Israel that if they fail to follow the terms of the covenant of Moses and we'll see some covenant renewal ceremonies to ensure that people understand that the Mosaic covenant stands forever because it didn't end with their entry into the promised land. But there is one more aspect of this section we're going to start shortly that is also truly fascinating. And it is stated in the words of a chapter that we're going to get into in a few weeks. Chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, verse 28. And that aspect is in the form of a a riddle. It's a mystery about Israel's duty to observe the Torah. It says, The secret things belong to Jehovah our God and the revealed things to us and to our children forever. We are to do the words of this Torah. I don't think I can do any better than to quote the eminent scholar C.J. Labuschain in, in, in this regard. He says this, The plain meaning of this text of Deuteronomy refers to its immediate context, which speaks of a national disaster for Israel as a consequence of disobedience to Jehovah's commands. But at the same time, those words have another message. The concealed things, the esoteric knowledge with regard to the written text of the law, the sacred numerical structures, all of these are for the sacred benefit of God to His glory. But the text of the law in its straight, plain language is for the benefit of the people. What we have is a coded message to the ordinary people, the uninitiated who do not know the hidden intricacies of the text so that they would at least obey the law in its plain meaning. You see, the content of the revealed truth, that part of the Torah that all men can understand without being scholars, This is what is written as part of Moses' sermon and contained within that central core of what's called the law. It is those laws and commands presented to us in plain language that we find in Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 26. But what we are going to find now in chapters 26 through 30 begins to delve into this realm of the deeper mysteries that only those who know and love and diligently seek the God of Israel can even begin to comprehend. comprehend. So, with that introduction, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy chapter 26.
page 225, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read it all. When you have come to the land, Adonai, your God, is giving you as your inheritance, taken possession of it, and you have settled there. You are to take the first fruits of all the crops the ground yields, which you will harvest from your land that Adonai, your God, is giving you. You will put them in a basket. You will go to the place where Adonai, your God, will choose to have his name live. You will approach the Kohen, the priest, holding office at that time, and say to him, Today I declare to Adonai, your God, that I have come to the land Israel swore to our ancestors that he would give to us. The priest will take the basket from your hand. He'll put it down in front of the altar of Adonai, your God. Then in the presence of Adonai, your God, you are to say, My ancestor was a nomad from Aram. He went down to Egypt, few in number, and he stayed. And there he became great, strong, a populous nation. But the Egyptians treated us badly. They oppressed us. They imposed harsh slavery on us. So we cried out to Adonai, the God of our ancestors. Adonai heard us. He saw our misery, our toil and oppression. Adonai brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand, a stretched out arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders. Now he has brought us to this place and given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Therefore, as you see, I have now brought the first fruits of this land which you, Adonai, have given me. You're then to put the basket down before Adonai your God, prostrate yourself before Adonai your God, and take joy in all the good that Adonai your God has given to you, your household, the Levites, and the foreigner living with you. Now after you have separated a tenth of the crops, yielded in the third year, the year of separating a tenth, and you've given it to the Levites, the the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow, so that they can have enough food to satisfy them while they're staying with you, you are to say, in the presence of Adonai your God, I have rid my house of the things set aside for God. I've given them to the Levites, the foreigner, the orphan, and the um, widow. In keeping with every one of the mitzvot, the commands, you gave to me. I haven't disobeyed any of your mitzvot or forgotten them. I haven't eaten any of this food when mourning. I haven't put any of it aside when unclean. I haven't given any of it for the dead. I have listened to what Adonai my God said and I have done everything you ordered me to do. Look out from your holy dwelling place from heaven. Bless your people Israel and the land you gave us as you swore to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Today, Adonai, your God, orders you to obey these laws and rulings. Therefore, you are to observe and obey them with all your heart, all your being. You are agreeing today that Adonai is your God, that you will follow him in his ways. You will observe his laws, his commands, his rulings. You will do what he says. In turn, Adonai is agreeing today that you are his own unique treasure, as he promised you, that you are to observe all of his commands, and that he will raise you high above all the nations he has made, in praise, reputation, and glory, 
And that as he said, you will be a holy people for Adonai, your God. One of the more interesting revelations of this chapter is that here and here alone, in the entire Torah, we find some precisely prescribed declarations that each lay worshiper is to recite while they're doing the rituals of bringing their first fruits up to the tabernacle. In essence, these declarations are God-designed form prayer for the ordinary Israelite. In that sense, this prayer is very similar in nature to the New Testament's Lord's Prayer. Now, while the priests often have form prayers as part of their ritual liturgy, we really don't find much in the way of form prayers in the Bible that are designed for the average person, the average Israelite to speak. This law about bringing the first fruits up to the tabernacle and later to the temple, it couldn't be performed out in the wilderness. It was a practical matter. Only after the Israelites had conquered and settled the land of Canaan could, could this even be observed when the tribes had fields and orchards to harvest. Now it's interesting to me that one of the instructions for the Hebrew farmer is that he's the place, the portion of his harvest that he's going to present to God in a basket. That seems like an awfully trivial detail until we realize that up to this point in Israel's history that we're now in here in Deuteronomy, Israel knows very little about farming. They were historically a shepherding people. They raised animals. In Egypt, some were likely engaged in agriculture, but the largest portion were shepherds and they were construction workers. Therefore, while first fruits ceremonies were, were, were well known within Middle Eastern cultures of this day, They probably weren't that well known to the Israelites. Details needed to be given to these future farmers. Now, by now our studies have introduced us to two so-called first fruit ceremonies. The one that which in Hebrew is called Bikurim, alright, in association with the spring festivals of Passover and unleavened bread. And then another summer festival of first fruits that's called uh, Shavuot here in the summer. We call it Pentecost, by the way. Now, there is actually a third first fruits celebration that's held in conjunction with the fall festival that's called Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. This last one is also technically known as the Feast of Final Ingathering, meaning it's the end of the harvesting season because winter is nearing. Now, each of these three festivals that deals with with, with first fruits was connected to to a pilgrimage. 
Of the seven total biblical feasts, three of them require that the worshiper, generally meaning the males, are to journey from wherever they are to the tabernacle with his offering of first fruits. That's the meaning of the statement in verse 3 that ends with the words, and go to the place where the Lord God will choose to establish his name. That place would move a few times after Israel first conquered Canaan with Shiloh, Shiloh, right, being the most permanent location for the tent. And in time, Israel would establish several competing sites. And eventually, by the time of David and then Solomon, it would finally become Jerusalem, where the temple was uh, finally constructed. Now, at each of these three times per year journeys to the tabernacle, the worshiper is to hand his basket of produce to a priest who will officiate and perform this ceremony. And upon turning his sacrifice of first fruits over to the priest, this, this lay person, this ordinary Israelite, is then to make this following statement. I acknowledge that this day before the Lord your God I have entered to the land that the Lord swore to our fathers, to assign us. Now the meaning of that declaration is very straightforward, just like it sounds, but it's also monumental. It is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The land that was promised by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so long ago has been given. It is finished. It was not another land. It was this land. It was not going to be another time. It is now. The connection with the giving of the first fruits of the field is that without the land they now possess, there'd be no first fruits to give. Church, hear me. It grieves my heart to hear so many denominational lead leaders actually question why it is that the Jews necessarily have to be back in Israel. And this is an issue because the Jewish presence there supposedly has displaced a people called the Palestinians. Now, while this is not the only place in the Bible that unequivocally states that God intended to give Canaan exclusively to Israel... This event actually did occur. And God even required the Israelites to acknowledge that fact in this prayerful declaration we find in Deuteronomy 26. It's happened. It's done. It's over. It's noteworthy that the declaration is that I have entered the land of Canaan. Now that might seem a little more appropriate of a declaration for the very first generation of Israelites, those ones who fought alongside Joshua. But the Lord intends, you see, 
that every generation of Hebrew identify himself with the land just as though he was the first one there. The Mishnah states regarding the Passover observances that in every generation one must view oneself as if he personally came out of Egypt. This is the source of that principle. Now, this concludes the first part of the first fruit ceremony. And the next, after the priest has taken the basket, he sets it before the, the altar, the Hebrew farmer is to make another declaration now to the Lord. And what makes it interesting is that it essentially is a brief review, this declaration, of the history of Israel. The worshiper acknowledges a number of things in this second prayerful declaration, this form prayer. First, he acknowledges that Israel began as nothing special. My father was a nomad from Aram. The precise meaning of this has been haggled over a little bit, but the underlying concept is pretty simple. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all identified, you see, more with the homeland of their ancestor Terah, Abraham's father, than the place where they wandered into Canaan before relocating down to Egypt. One of the names for the region where Abraham came from is Aram, alongside the river. So this is quite correct to identify the patriarchs as Aramaeans, Arameans. That's where the name comes from. Some Bible versions will translate this as a fugitive from Syria. Because Damascus, Syria eventually became the stronghold for the Aram Aeans. But not until long after the time of the patriarchs. Now all that said, the thing is that each Israelite declares that their association to the patriarchs uh, is to the patriarchs who were originally from Aram, a place way up north. Second, it is then acknowledged that being very small in number, again, we're reviewing the history of Israel, it's what they're doing. Jacob's clan, in no way big enough to be called a people or a nation, they went down into Egypt where they did become a very large nation. Third, they state that the condition of their stay in Egypt was as under harsh oppression. Fourth, They say that it was from this condition of hard labor and slavery that the Lord rescued Israel and did it in a miraculous, supernatural way. Fifth, that God moved Israel from a place where they were were landless, they had no hope, to the land he had already set aside for his people, that he had promised to those patriarchs, where they would own land. And then that land would produce abundantly for them. Sixth, and since it is God who owns all things, since he created all things, it is logical that all things that grow from the soil 
over the promised land should be seen first and foremost as God's property. So a portion of all that grows, the first and the best, is offered to Jehovah in thanksgiving. That's the meaning of the first fruit ceremony. Now hidden in all this is that Israel denies, you see, the Canaanites claim that Baal is the ruling God over that land. It is Jehovah that is supreme. He is behind all the wonders that have happened to Israel. Well, another interesting note that we'll finish up with is that biblically and historically, right up to this day, Jews see things within the context of the nation and people of the Jews collectively rather than as individually. The scriptures bears out this view of a collective identification as being far more important to them than individuality. Therefore, priests perform their rituals on behalf of Israel. The feasts are for Israel corporately. There's only a few places in the Torah where the individual is highlighted. And it is this particular one that draws my attention because it's all about redemption. Each Israelite must acknowledge his own personal identification with the God of Israel. And the redemption that Jehovah has given to him as an individual. The first fruit ceremonies are very personal in tone and in their purpose. Well, the ceremony concludes now with a joyous feast. A festive meal is eaten near the entry to the sanctuary. And this is required of the worshiper. And since the Levites were busy tending to the matters of the tabernacle, they generally weren't able to farm very much. So the Levites were to be invited to share in this festive meal provided by the hundreds of thousands of worshipers who would come to celebrate. Even the ger, the foreigners, it says, there to be invited to participate because it helps Israel to remember these uncomfortable circumstances of being a foreigner in a land that's not your own. Therefore, they're to have great mercy and compassion on foreigners because the Lord does. I think we'll end here tonight and we'll start with verse 12 next week.